Well, I wanted to play a little uh, game of word association just with two words before we get going or as we get going. Uh, when I say uh, this, this word, I want you to just think about um, what comes to your mind. So when I say the word holy man or holy woman, um, what are some images or maybe even people's names that come to mind? Mother Teresa. Okay. John the Baptist, yeah. yeah. Holy man, holy woman. How about when I say the word priest, what comes to mind? Okay. Pope? Collar, yeah. This is the jewel. Formality? Oftentimes when we think of holy people, we associate with them special gifts or a strict moral code or specific people like maybe Aaron, Moses' brother, the first of the priestly tribe or the Dalai Lama or someone said Mother Teresa. Um, and, and, And oftentimes we think of holy people or special priests as, as having a special status even before God or all things holy. And if there are a special segment of people designated holy, priestly, and especially close to God, then where does that leave the rest of us? I've been wrestling with this question this week, not because it's something I think about very often, uh, to tell you the truth, but because it emerges from the scripture that we're going to be looking at this evening. We're nearly to the end of our series in the book of Exodus, in which we've been focusing on what God has to say about worship, and specifically what he has to say about worship to the Hebrew people that he delivered from slavery in Egypt. And I admit, I was not very excited about the prospect of preaching about priesthood. There's multiple chapters in Exodus about detailed things that the priests wore and like what kind of ephod they had and all of these different gems and rocks and stuff on their thing and what color turban that they wore. And then there's the whole, a whole chapter on the ordination ceremony. It's just incredibly boring, not as fun to teach as Jesus stuff, which can't wait to get back to you, by the way. But then I realized that this is Jesus stuff. And I discovered that the priesthood in Exodus actually sheds light on the situation of all humanity. Mind blown. Uh, This is more than a history lesson, this Exodus stuff, Um, especially when taken in the context of the rest of Scripture. So these passages about priesthood preach to us about what human life is all about, and that is very good news. I see some of you might be skeptical about that statement, so let me, let me show you, uh, and we better start by praying. Father, we thank you for this word, and for some reason, you put in the Bible uh, details about what these people wore, and what kind of oil they were anointed with, and how they washed up before serving you as priests, and it seems archaic, outdated, and way too detailed, and yet you put it in the Bible, and so we want to take it seriously, and so I thank you um, when we take things seriously and sit with them that you reveal good things to us and good news to us. So would you enable me and us to receive this good news and to communicate it well? We need your help, Holy Spirit. Amen. 
Back in August, Corey and I took a trip to Costa Rica celebrating our 20th wedding anniversary. Near the end of the week, we had done all of the stuff you're supposed to do in Costa Rica, the zip lining and going to the national parks to see monkeys and sloths, and we swam in pools with waterfalls and all that stuff, right? And then we thought, well, we'll just relax by the pool and read our books, which was good for a while, and then it got boring. Sorry, I, I know it's like with weather like this, you're like, how could that be boring? Anyway, so we just wanted to do a hike, sorry. Um, and so Corey looks up uh, online where, to, where, where a good hike would be, and we it literally said, around mile marker so-and-so by a gas station, there's a trailhead, you should be able to find it. So we just thought, what the heck, we tried it. We park our car next to the sketchy spot, and we go up this trail, and the trail was paved and took us by some bungalows and some smaller little hotel inn-type things, and then it narrowed and got from pavement to dirt, and pretty soon we were in the canopy of basically a hill jungle going up this hill. Half an hour in, we see a side trail to the left that looked like it would have a great view. And as we followed this trail up, we found ourselves in a ruin of an old hotel, an old Spanish colonial-style hotel that was just overgrown with vines and trees going through it, and it had a magnificent view of the Pacific Ocean. It was so interesting, just how it was taken over. There was no ceiling left on it, but you could tell by the tile work and the stone work that this was at one time a fancy place. And it made me think, what was it like when people dressed up and were fancy in that ballroom or eating dinner outside of the terrace uh, watching the sunset over the ocean? What did it look like in all of its splendor as it was originally designed? As we consider the priesthood in the book of Exodus and then throughout the rest of scripture up until the resurrection of Jesus, I want to suggest that we are looking in some way at a people that's related to that broken down hotel. And let, let me explain that to you. Let's start at the beginning, at the creation in the genesis of time. God creates heaven and earth, all things, including human beings, and he calls it all very good. All creation declares the glory of God. It all points to his creativity and his power and his wisdom. Creation then worships God by doing what it was made to do. When a mountain is a mountain, it looks awesome and you can ski on it. It's doing what it was made to do. And I think God is pleased by that. When, when a bird sings and flies and when a fish swims, it's doing what it was made to do. And I think God is pleased by that. And so what were people created to do? Well, first, we're created to be image bearers of the living God, men and women made in God's image. And sometimes that confuses us, that made in God's image language. Does that mean we look like God, act like God? Does that mean that God looks like us, like he's got two legs and two arms and walks about like a human? In the ancient world in which Genesis is written, to be an image bearer of a god or a king had nothing to do with what one looked like or the stuff that they're made of. It had everything to do with humans being a representative of God on earth. His icons, his priests, if you will, telling the rest of creation through our lives what God is like. What a dignifying identity we have. That's, that's not even the sermon that I'm talking about. I'm just going back to to remind you of who we are, but do you realize how dignifying that is? That human beings were created with the purpose of being made in the image of God to reflect his glory to the rest of creation. You should sit up a little straighter right now. 
That's who you are. That's our identity. Second is the human vocation. We're created not as slaves on the one hand and not as independent beings left to do as we please on the other. As image bearers of God, we're called to care for and cultivate the earth, to grow things and refine things and to make things, but in a way that enhances creation and enhances relationships rather than in a way that exploits them and destroys them. When we create and build and heal and serve, we are being who we were created to be. There was no temple in the Genesis account. No need for one. God was there. And there's no special place to meet with God because God gave us access to him in the Garden of Eden. Eden was literally God's temple. There were no priests necessary, no special people who mediated between humans and God because God was with us. He had no reason, people had no reason to be in fear or shame. And if we fast forward to the book of Revelation, which is always a good idea, by the way, when you're looking at other passages in the Bible, look at what we're created for and look at how the story ends out. You'll also see that in the book of Revelation at the very end, when the kingdom of God comes, there are no priests, no need for that. There's no sacrifices. There's no temple or tabernacle. Why? Because Jesus will have fully restored creation. His kingdom will have come in its fullness. And that means people who are redeemed by Jesus will be in God's presence, in his presence without need for priests, without need for special sacred spaces, because it'll all be sacred. Which begs the question, Why does God give such detailed instructions about a tabernacle, a priesthood, and a sacrificial system, and a liturgy in the book of Exodus and in many places throughout the Bible? The short answer is this. The tabernacle, the temple, the sacrificial system, even the liturgy of songs, prayers, and word, and sacrament, I think they're all temporary fixes that point to a long-term solution. And that includes the temporary and changing nature of the priesthood. As the story of Genesis Exodus so clearly describes, humans rebelled against God. Not in a sort of armed uprising, like we're going to test our mettle against God, but actually in a much deeper and more destructive way. They turned their hearts from him, stopped trusting him, began to go it alone. Humans began to listen to the voice of the accuser who caused them to doubt the goodness of the Father, caused them to believe that they'd be better off on their own, and that leads to disobedience. still does, doesn't it? It's not that God couldn't just forgive us. In fact, he does over and over again in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, all throughout Scripture. He continually forgives us. The issue is that forgiveness doesn't actually heal the brokenness that sin inflicts on the human heart, Right? I've used this analogy before. I, I, I smash into your car, Jen. You forgive me. Our relationship's okay. But someone's got to fix that car, right? Forgiveness doesn't fix the car. Being forgiven restores a relationship, but it doesn't fix the problem. Something much bigger was needed to pay that debt. And so the most loving thing to do is to cast these people out of Eden, away from the tree of life, after all, to live forever as a sinful person, is a living hell. Like we would just keep hurting each other over and over again. And yet God doesn't cut off the relationship, does he? 
If broken and sinful humanity couldn't be in the Garden of Eden, then he would send Eden to them. And that's where the tabernacle comes in. As we've seen before, humans were cast out of Eden in which direction? East, right. And so the tabernacle is set up with its, its aspect facing east. The doorway of the tabernacle faces east as if God is saying, come, come back toward the west, come back toward me. I've created a way for us to be together even if you can't be in Eden right now. The tabernacle that God instructed Moses and the Israelites to make is a representation of heaven on earth. From materials representing the sky and the moon and the sun and the stars to the candelabra inside the tabernacle representing the tree of life, God was pursuing the people, bringing heaven to them, making his presence accessible. Even the consecration ceremony of the tabernacle was six days culminating in the seventh, just like the creation story. Okay, that's all review, but if you're just joining us today, that's what we've been talking about for a long time, since September. (laughs) Now check this out. Aaron, the brother of Moses, and his family line were called out by God to be the priestly tribe. Their garments literally mirror the materials of the tabernacle. Listen to some of these descriptions. Um, I'm going to read real quick out of Exodus 28, um, 1 through 10-ish. Then bring near to yourself Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the sons of Israel to minister as priests to me. Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, all these names that are complicated. Uh, You should speak to all the skillful persons I have endowed with the spirit of wisdom that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him that he may minister as a priest to me. Okay, Uh, they shall uh, make the ephod of gold and blue and purple and scarlet material, fine twisted linen, the work of a skillful workman. It shall have two shoulder pieces joined ends, two ends that may be joined. Uh, You shall have two onyx stones and engrave them with the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone according to their birth. As a jeweler engraves a signet, so you shall engrave the two stones according to the names of the sons of Israel. You shall set them in filigree settings of gold. You shall put the pieces of the ephod as stones of memorial for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for a memorial. Literally, the clothes that he's, he's, the, the priests are dressed in are the same colors, the purple and the blue, of the tabernacle. And the onyx stones are the same stones that are in the tabernacle. It's almost as if the priests are walking little tabernacles, bringing the presence of God to the people, and then with the ephod, with the stones, with the names of the 12 tribes, bringing the people into the presence of God. Chapter 29 describes the ordination ceremony of the priests, and guess how many days it lasted? Seven days. Creation, seven days. Tabernacle, seven days. Ordination of the priests, seven days. There's something funky going on here. Priests also had special ethical laws. They could drink alcohol on their off time, but not during duty. Nobody should probably do that during duty. Uh, They could marry (laughs) and have children, but they were uh, to be always ceremonially unclean. So when you're touching, doing certain things, there are certain days for that, and certain days you couldn't do that. Uh, Their ephod, their ornate chest place uh, that they wore was to reflect the glory and honor of God. Honor, by the way, um, if you ever like, I want to be honored. Do you know what honor means in Hebrew? It translates this word kabod. Can you say kabod? 
Kabad. That means literally wait. Honor means wait. When you are given honor, you're also given great responsibility. And so God is so glorious because he carries this weight about, the weight of the world, right? And so these priests are also carrying kabod, glory, weight uh, in, their, in their representation of God. So they physically, through their dress, represent God. Ethically, they were, they were to remain almost superhumanly uh, ethical. And as we know from history, they weren't able to maintain that uh, hardly at all. And their duty was to intercede between God and people, to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people, to lead the liturgy and the worship and the storytelling of God's word to the people. So what does that teach us about how God sees his people and about how we worship? Just two quick things, and then we'll get to something more practical, okay? The first thing is that God so loves us that he pursues us even though we actively rebel against us or against him. Uh, We get ourselves kicked out of Eden, but he just keeps going further and further into the wilderness, further humbling himself to reach our wandering hearts. And the second thing we learn is just how far we've fallen. The sacrifices of atonement are gross. (laughs) They require the blood of animals on a regular basis. Just think about how disgusting that is. Hey, let's go to church today, kids, and the altar's right out on the front steps, and you're killing stuff. Let me just say this. The blood of these sacrifices, there's nothing magical about them. Like, nobody believed, and God never said that those sacrifices actually atoned for anything. He just wants us to know how much atonement costs. To get used to the fact that, man, things are really broken when our worship includes that aspect, right? Right? Which leads us to the third truth that we learn from all this Exodus worship stuff. It's temporary. Not because it isn't good, but because it isn't best. Exodus worship, tabernacle worship, the priesthood, all of these things, they're temporary and they point to something better. The tabernacle, as we've seen in previous weeks, points to the presence of God among us. And in the person of Jesus, God becomes flesh, literally tabernacles among us. Jesus fulfills the need for tabernacle and temple. We don't need to go to a special place to worship. Jesus is with us wherever we gather to worship. Okay? The sacrificial system points to a greater atonement, which Jesus fulfills on the cross. Just as in Eden, we now have access to God. Through faith in Jesus, we're adopted into the family of God as daughters and sons. I'm excited about that. I I don't have to kill stuff to worship Jesus. That's amazing. You can be happy. Smile. Okay. And, And the priesthood points to a better priesthood. Just as Jesus fulfills the purpose of the tabernacle, so he also fulfills the role of priest. The writer to the Hebrews describes Jesus as the great high priest. He carried out the final atoning sacrifice. He intercedes between God and people forever. He stands in the gap. Like right now, he's doing that work. You might be saying, what do we pay you for? I'm not a priest. The gifts of the Spirit, they don't give anyone the gift of priest. I have the gift of pastor-teacher, and for some reason, you guys pay me to do that. But, that but, but what I do is I point you to the great high priest, right? I'm not a priest in that sense. 
in the collar sense, right? Okay. That's not the end of the story. It's not yet the end of the book of Revelation. Heaven, if you've noticed, has not yet fully come. Thank goodness, because if this is all it is, whew. Um, so what does all this mean for us living now between the ages of Jesus' death and resurrection and the end of the book of Revelation? We're kind of stuck in this tension, in this in-between time. After Jesus resurrected from the dead, fulfilling the role of high priest and atoning sacrifice, he ascends into heaven. And not long after, God pours out his Holy Spirit on the followers of Jesus. You know, so often people focus, and I do too, um, when we think about the Holy Spirit and the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the disciples, we think about the gifts of the Spirit, right? We think about how the Spirit equips us with, uh, with special gifts that are vital to our ministry as the church. That's all important. But I think that the greatest gift, the greatest miracle of all is that the Holy Spirit, which is God's own presence, comes and takes up residence in every baptized follower of Jesus. That's crazy. Like, I can get my head around uh, God giving me some special gift, right? But to think that God is in me in a way like, he, hey, I, I want to hang out in you. I want to dwell in my people. That's crazy. and that, That's humbling. That's dignifying. It's all kinds of mixed fe- feelings, So now, in a strange way, followers of Jesus are little tabernacles out in the world. We embody God's presence. We are to reflect his character back into the world. And that makes you and I priests in the real sense of that word. You and I, priests, not just me, not just other people that dress differently, right? You and I, priests in the world. That's amazingly good news. If you've ever wondered, just forget about what all that means for a minute because I'll I'll get there in a second, but just just pause and just take it in. If you've ever wondered what you're on this earth for, if you've ever agonized about your place in the scheme of things, it's kind of the answer we've all been waiting for. God desires to redeem every broken image bearer, every single human being, And through Jesus, he wants to restore his image in us so that we could be who we were created to be in the first place, his priests in the world. Okay, now, all the visionary people, yeah, that's so great, feelings. Um, All the practical people, when's he gonna get to the stuff that we do? Okay, so we're gonna get there right now. Okay, four things for note takers, if you like your your notes, Um, four things. Okay, you're not going to like this first one. But uh, the, first, the first role, I think, of the priest is rest. What? I want to do something. Seriously, you heard me. In a world that is obsessed with performance and fear and anxiety, a priest of God learns to rest in God. We rest in the fact that God is holy, and through Jesus, he declares us holy. We rest in the grace of Jesus. That is, we don't become priests by getting a special degree or by joining a special club. We are called out, not because of what we've done, but because we've cast our lives on Jesus. He's the rescuer. 
He's the Savior. He's the cross-bearer. We rest in the fact that he loves us. Let me ask you, just take stock of your week, just one week, even five days. Those feelings of not measuring up, or maybe anger or frustration about the brokenness of the world. Maybe the fact that you're realizing right now, oh, Krista said I'm a priest, and I haven't even thought about God in the last couple days. I've been so busy, let alone thought of myself as a priest of God. How does it feel to know that your number one job isn't to get your stuff together, but to rest in the grace of Jesus, to know that he knows you, to know that he hears you, to know that he sees you, and to receive that he loves you, that he has covered you. Let me say this, before we can be priests to anyone else, we have to rest in the grace of Jesus, the great high priest. Okay, first thing, rest in Jesus. Second thing, our second role as a priest is to reflect God's holiness back into the world. We live in a world torn apart by paradox and tension. All people are made in God's image. We believe that. The scriptures say that. And yet, because we're broken by sin, we consistently harm one another and we harm the created order, like a lot, like every day. Right? What a weird paradox. I'm supposed to treat you, and I mean, in some ways it's easier, like church people that I know and love. I'm just supposed to treat everyone I come into contact with as someone made in the image of God, a person that's rude or racist or sexist. I'm supposed to treat them as made in the image of God. What does that look like? You've got to treat me like I'm made in God's image. It can be challenging. It's not just individuals making bad choices that we bump into, is it? Sin infects whole societies, structures. Racism is a structural issue. It's not just one person. We just change this person's mind or this group of people's mind. It is embedded in societies. Our economic systems are affected by sin. Our media is affected by sin. Our families are affected by sin. Sin is generational. We pass crap on to our kids. Oh, I see my parents coming out. My kids, I see my stuff coming out of my kids. Our governments are affected, right? It's it's systemic. And as priests, we're called to reflect a different reality, an alternative reality, rooted in the fact that we rest in God's acceptance of us. That means that we become freer to engage the world without fear of rejection. We're free to see others as people loved by God, not as our competition. What is this alternative reality? A life lived that sacrifices for others, a lifestyle that affirms life and affirms beauty and affirms justice. You know, hot topic right now um, that we're all familiar with because it's out all over the place is sexual righteousness, particularly how men in positions of power have abused that power um, 
over women primarily, but also um, over young men, preying on these people. And the names coming out, you know, it's not just people on one side of the political aisle. There's people on both sides of the aisle. And it's the young and it's the old and they're Christians and they're non-Christians. And the role of the church of priests is to declare this injustice. It's been argued that pastors supporting Roy Moore uh, do so out of fear that an alternative candidate might get in office. And, and so it's an ends justifies the means mentality. Yeah, this guy's done some shady stuff, but the real important thing is that we get these votes the right way. Let me tell you what. <laughs> Priests of God seek the truth and root out injustice. We don't have an ends justifies the means mentality. We hold each other accountable. And if we think that the end of the world is coming because our politics in one state and one time period isn't going to go our way, then we are really showing that we're putting our faith in our political system and not in our God. We don't have to fear about losing these little battles. What we have to fear is further supporting oppression because our, our girls are afraid to speak up because no one's listening Right? And our boys are afraid to speak up because no one's taking them seriously. I'd be more afraid about that when I'm facing God. How we live matters. And if we've truly been made new by Jesus, then we're going to reflect that reality back into the world. We confess when we are wrong and we show the grace of Jesus when people repent. Priests engage in meaningful work. Tonight we prayed for our healers among us. We prayed for uh, our friends from Whatcom Center. Uh, center? Did I say sinner? Sorry. I'm sure you guys are sinners too, but yeah. <laughs> uh, our cohort kids engaged in meaningful work, shopping on Sunday morning for people in our neighborhood. Um, this is the work of the priest to invest in our community. The work of the priest of God is seen in the artist and the engineer and the homemaker and the janitor. Priestly work is exercised by the electrician and the geologist, the business owner and the truck driver. And when we do our work, whatever that work may be, for the glory of God and for our neighbor's good, we are reflecting the goodness of God back into his creation. We're being priests. Okay. Third, priests of God intercede on behalf of the world. These two are so related. But priests in the Bible stood in the gap between God and other human beings. They were mediators of sorts. And as people of the Spirit, the people of God today are called to mediate between God and the world. We pray prayers on a regular basis of intercession for individuals that we know and for the communities we live in and care about. We pray over social structures and those needing support, uh, and those social structures that need toppling. We stand in the gap between a prophetic voice against injustice, and we're to be voices of support for those things that bring life, right? We've got to be careful that we're not, we're not just negative, and not just positive, right? The church has both voices. What if we prayed even half as often as we complained or worried about things. 
Our role as priests isn't to populate an echo chamber of our friends on Twitter and Facebook who already think like us. And those, who, uh, and those aren't forums that are going to change the hearts and minds of those who don't agree with us. Right? We're to be people of prayer, a people of engagement. Okay, those are the first three things. Finally, and this is very good news, the role of the priest is to point to Jesus. The secret to being a healthy priest is that you are not Jesus. And I am not Jesus. John the Baptist teaches us a valuable lesson in John's gospel. His whole ministry was to pave the way for people to receive Jesus. And when people tried to figure out who John was, they asked him, are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. Are you somebody we've heard of? No. Well, what gives you the right to do what you're doing? Who do you think you are? John knew exactly who he wasn't and who he was. He says, I'm a voice crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. John pointed people to Jesus. It was his greatest honor and most important ministry to point people to Jesus. And that's our role as well. You are not called to be Jesus. You are not called to be crucified. You are not called to fix people. Even you healers, I know that you care so much, but you're, you're not called to fix people. You're not called to be important. You are not called to be successful as the world judges success. You are not called to win a popularity contest. And some Christians need to hear that you are not called to be intentionally unpopular like it's a badge of honor either. You and I are called to point to Jesus. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you so much for being so amazing and worth pointing to. (laughs) You are amazing and worthy, not only because of creating the world and creating us, but through your humility and love and going to sparing no lengths to rescue us, becoming a human, dying on the cross, defeating death on our behalf, and then including us in the glory that is all yours. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We pray forgiveness for the ways that we, we doubt and we squelch the Spirit and we try and do things in our own strength for our own um, gain. And we pray that you would help us to receive afresh how deeply you love us. I pray for my brothers and sisters right now who are struggling to believe how deeply loved they are. Would you break through, Lord? Let us know how deeply you love us. Give us a sense, Holy Spirit, of our dignified calling as your priests in this world. Help us to rest in you. Help us to seek justice and beauty in the world. Help us to be men and women of prayer. And help us to point to you, Lord. In our strengths and in our failures, when we're being recognized as a positive influence in the community and when we're on our knees, help us to point to you. In Jesus' name.